We've come to the last of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. <clears throat> begin to read at Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At the site of ancient Laodicea in modern-day Turkey, archaeologists are beginning to restore the once world-famous stadium, most of which has been covered with rubble for centuries. The Laodicean stadium was huge, over 800 feet long, and it was the venue for sports events including the bloody, murderous gladiator contests. This ancient stadium is next door to a large network of baths, as the archaeologists have discovered. Baths which served as pools of water for relaxation and hygiene. The extensive area occupied by the stadium and the bath complex is an indication. It is an indication of the extreme wealth of the city of Laodicea in the first and second century. She was an extremely wealthy city because she was, in fact, the banking center for her region of Asia Minor. So rich was she that when an earthquake destroyed much of the city in 60 AD, she boasted of her rejection of any outside financial aid, declaring that she had need of nothing outside herself. Laodicea boasted of her riches in her arrogance and self-smugness. Her geographical region and location was the Lycus River Valley. 
the same valley in which Colossae was situated. And you'll notice the map which you may recognize from our series on the epistle to the Colossians. The area is replete with thermal springs, the most famous being those in Hierapolis to the north of Laodicea, springs which as they evaporate after the steam comes to the surface, leave a white calcium carbonate substance which can be seen for miles, even on a clear day from Laodicea itself, if everything is right. All three cities, then, as you see on your map, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis, are mentioned in the New Testament. Paul's letter to the Colossians describes his longing, his yearning, to see the Christians at Laodicea face to face. Chapter 2, verse 1 of the epistle to the Colossian church. He declared in that very same epistle his deep concern for the Christians in Hierapolis and Laodicea, chapter 4, verse 13, as well as his comment that he had written a letter. He had written a letter to the Laodiceans, chapter 4, verse 16, a letter which has not been preserved. And in that same verse, Colossians 4.16, he requested that his epistle to the Colossians be passed on to the congregation in Laodicea and read to the congregation there. We have discussed these details in our series on Colossae, but it's welcome, it's well for us to remind ourselves when we're reading this letter to the church at the change that has occurred in that church's character and history. Now, once again, I want to suggest how the gospel of God's saving grace in Christ came to Laodicea as it came to several others of these churches, including Colossae. And indeed, it was, in my opinion, the same vehicle of the Holy Spirit as came to the Colossian church, the evangelistic work of Epaphras. He's called the bond servant of Christ, as he's called the fellow prisoner with Paul during the time the apostle wrote his prison epistles. That's a note is in Philemon, verse 23. We, we observe here, as we read this description in Revelation 3:14 and following, we observe here that Laodicea, once had a vibrant Christian congregation. In the apostolic days of Paul and Timothy, she thrived, like the first generation church in Ephesus. She had lost her first love and worse. Now, Laodicea was named, the city was named for the wife of a third century B.C., Seleucid, or Syrian ruler, king of this former Lydian region of Asia Minor, a king named Antiochus II, who is a third century figure, reigned over Seleucia and Syria from 262 to 246 BC. The name of his wife was Laodicea, and she was the first wife of Antiochus II. 
But political convenience and greed, not to say lust, led Antiochus to divorce Laodicea and marry a daughter of the Egyptian king, King Ptolemy II, who reigned from 283 to 246 B.C. Now, the second wife was named Berenice, and she gave Antiochus II a son very soon after their marriage. But when her father, that is Ptolemy II, when Berenice's father Ptolemy II died, Antiochus divorced Berenice and remarried Laodicea. Now, if you're keeping up with this patent place, Laodicea did what you would expect. She vowed vengeance on Berenice and the infant son and murdered them about 246 B.C., same time that her husband Antiochus II died. And legend has it that she poisoned Antiochus II, her fickle husband, and can be labeled a true and genuine femme fatale. But the story's not over. In retaliation for the execution of Berenice, Ptolemy III, her brother, invaded Seleucian or Syrian territory and got all the way to Laodicea's palace and executed her, also about 246 B.C. Now, all of these details actually are alluded to and some specified in particular in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, verses 6 to 7, contains a little a bit more about this intrigue as well as the Syrian wars, the so-called wars between the Egyptians and the Syrians, which lasted for several hundred years. So Daniel 11, 6 and 7, which you can find in Lecture 4 of my series on that book at krooks.com. Now, as we have noted in the case of the letters to the previous six churches of Asia Minor, each of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 contains language and imagery alluding to the history and culture of that particular city and its locale. Laodicea is no exception. In fact, there is a rich reflection here of imagery which takes, no, which takes some allusions from the story of the city and its, and its life itself. So I'm going to concentrate on four prominent aspects of Laodicea's past and present in the first century A.D. as John receives this revelation from our Lord. For our Lord is featuring these illusions in his address to the professed Christians in Laodicea there. First is his use of water imagery. The water imagery of verses 15 and 16. Hot, cold, lukewarm. This is a clear reference to Laodicea's water system or aqueduct network which was constructed 
to transport potable water from springs south of the city. Water inside the city environs was not potable because it was smelled like thermal spring water and tasted as terrible. Now, modern archaeology has uncovered remains of this water delivery system, and those remains have been the subject of a great deal of debate. Beginning in the 19th century, when they were initially found, scholars believed that the lukewarm or tepid, nauseating water, which was present in the Odyssea, came from the hot springs in Hierapolis, north of Laodicea. Now, you can see how that would make some sense if, in fact, the water that Laodiceans drank came from hot springs in Laodicea through a system of pipes and aqueducts by the time it got from hot springs up in Hierapolis down to Laodicea, about 8 to 10 miles south, it could be lukewarm. Now, there's a problem with this suggestion. And that is that 20th century scholars have found and archaeologists have found no evidence of aqueducts from the north reaching Laodicea, at least not to date. The aqueducts which have been discovered appear to be coming from south of Laodicea, perhaps even east of the Colossian <coughs> access to the uh, Lycus River. Now, it is, of course, possible that this water from the south, by the time it reached the city, was tepid or lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. That is possible. But it is also possible that our Lord is referring to the three various degrees of water temperature just as a generality. Hot water, cold water, and lukewarm in-between water. The one, hygienic, the other, refreshing, the in-between one, nauseating. The debate about the source of the water may not be as important as the vivid description which our Lord gives of the three types of water and how the Laodicean Christians have become tepid, even disgusting, to the point that Jesus will spit them out of his mouth. As professing Christians neither on fire for Christ nor ice cold with respect to Christ, but merely lukewarm, they have, as we would, we would note, no genuine love nor genuine affection for the Lord and Savior of sinners. In that sense, they are nauseatingly tepid, and because they need to repent until they do so, he will spit them out of his mouth. Now, this is not a very positive reflection on the church at Laodicea. It is a church now filled with second or third generation Christians which have lost any sense of the spiritual reality of what it means to be a Christian believer. And that is the reason for the harsh language here from our Lord, even the language of expectoration. There are other images here which reinforce this indifference and arrogance. In fact, the spiritual carelessness of the congregation at Laodicea, we may say the even rank unbelief of most of those in that body. 
They are smug in their riches and wealth, verse 17. Self-satisfied that they need nothing. In fact, they had said they needed nothing in 60 AD when they rebuilt after that earthquake. So there's an allusion here to that. And not even the treasures of grace and love found in Christ Jesus are attractive to them. In fact, though they claim to be rich, they are poor and miserable, spiritually speaking. And they need to buy, as Jesus says, refined gold. Gold refined from Christ himself. Or gold refined in the furnace so as to become fiery yellow in color and richness. A kind of fire-like brilliance because it's been heated to such a high temperature. Christ Jesus is the gold standard. His eyes flashing with fire to refine all the dross in our souls and leave our love burning with fire for him. For if it was said of the early disciples that their hearts burned within them, Luke 24, 32, so it must be for all true believers in the one who is faithful and true. Our hearts burn within us with fiery love for your grace and passion for us, O blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Now one further remark about this matter of the wealth. Notice, if you will, the irony. The irony that in this city, which was the financial center of the Lycus Valley, the banking hub of the region, literally flowing with money, poverty dominates. And the only source of true riches is to be found not in Laodicea, but in heaven. Nor is it to be found in the wealthy financiers of Laodicea, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the source of infinite and eternal riches, he is our treasure. He is the source of our true spiritual wealth. In him, we confess that we possess Everything of which we have nothing by nature. We confess that in him we have everything of which we have nothing by nature. Now next, let us consider what our Lord says about the wretched and shameful nakedness of the Laodiceans. The shameful nakedness of their condition, of course, refers to their sin and sinfulness. They are uncovered before the eyes of God, and Christ sees their true condition by nature and by practice, or we might say doctrinally, by original sin and actual transgression. The irony here is that Laodicea, like Sardis and Thyatira, was a textile manufacturing center. And the textile for which it was noted was a particular type of woolen goods, namely a black woolen cloth which was spun 
from the black wool of sheep native to the region or from black wool which had been dyed after shearing white uh, flossed sheep or both, combination of both. Incidentally, it has been reported that sheep bearing black wool still survive in the modern-day region of ancient Laodicea. Now, ancient sources note that this black wool was peculiarly fine. It was glossy in texture and had a very delicate and soft touch. So it was very much sought after. Yet all the wool spun by the looms in Laodicea could not cover the naked shame of the sinners who lived there. Even those professing to be Christians who were denuded of true repentance, denuded of true faith, denuded of true salvation. Christ warns them that they are naked, they have no covering, and they need to be covered in order to hide their shame. They need to be covered, but they do not need, but because they need white, not black garments to hide their sin. They need the spotless white righteousness robes of Christ to cover their dark, naked unrighteousness. The Laodiceans need the garments Jesus produces, not the insufficient and inadequate garments made by the Laodicean looms. The all-covering, spotless white garment provided by the Lamb of God, there's the woolen covering they need. Jesus says to them, take the robes I offer you and dress yourselves in the garments of none other than the Son of God. For he will dress you spotless. He will clothe you shameless. He will put on you what he has made for you, his very own pure white righteousness robe covering. O Laodiceans, turn from your shame and be dressed anew in the righteousness of Christ in his spotless forgiveness, robing over your guilt, for he has the garments of eschatological glory, an eschatological covering so that you will be naked in your sin no more but you will be dressed in the sinless garb of the sinless Son of God. Now there are robes to seek and put on and wear and walk spotless before the world. Now finally we have this word blind in verse 17. And the opposite term, I salve, in verse 18. This language is also an allusion to a particular aspect of Laodicea's economy. In the region was what some scholars call a medical school. It was famous, <clears throat> world famous, or I should say, regional world famous, especially famous for an eye ointment which was produced in that so-called medical school. The name of that eye ointment was called Phrygian powder, 
It was a powder mixture which, when mixed with water, formed a paste to be applied to the eyes of those with ophthalmic problems. And it was much sought after. Christ is alluding to the spiritual blindness of the professing Laodicean Christians and declaring that they are in need of eye salve more wonderful than Phrygian powder. They need a supernatural or heavenly salve such that it will open their dark and benighted eyes to the grace and faith that is in Christ Jesus. A supernatural and heavenly, may I say, eschatological gift to open the eyes of the blind and to give sight to those dwelling in darkness. To penetrate the inky black soul with the light of heaven, the glory light of Christ, who is himself the light of the world, the eternal light of the age to come. Such a gift, such an salve, such a gift of light, can only be affected, can only be caused by the giver of a divine and supernatural light. The Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly Father. The effectual cause of passing out of darkness into the light of the world of Jesus comes from divine power and sources. God, the Holy Spirit, bringing a change to the heart from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. It is the Holy Spirit power parallel to the power of Christ himself when he opened the eyes of the man born blind in John chapter 9. The power effecting that healing came from Christ, not from the blind man. The power effecting healing of the blindness of Laodiceans comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit, not from the Laodiceans themselves. The effectual power necessary to alter spiritual blindness comes from the Savior, not the sinner. The possession of that power, possessor of that power, must give the gift. He must cause the transformation. He must cause the regeneration. He must cause the shift from darkness to light. It must come from the supernatural Christ, by the supernatural spirit, by the will of the supernatural Father. That effectual power, that effectual application of divine grace is found with God himself and God alone. It does not come from the sinner or from his power or from his vaunted free will. And so I'm going to take a break at this point because I want to drive, I want to bore down on this a little more deeply in terms of the context of the famous 20th verse of Revelation 3. If you have any questions or comments to this point, I'll be glad to entertain them, but otherwise, you may take your break. All right, continuing to focus on the effectual divine power behind the transformation and zeroing in on that with respect to the transformation from spiritual poverty to spiritual riches in this passage, 
we know that the one who possesses those riches must cause them to be treasured in the hearts of those once upon a time captive to spiritual poverty. He who has the riches and the treasures must affect the hearts of those who were once captive to the opposite, namely to the poverty of sinful curses. The one who possesses the garments of spotless white must dress his beloved saints in robes of his righteousness instead of the filthy rags they wear by nature. The effect must come from the one who possesses the solution. He must cause it to occur. He must effect its occurrence. He must <clears throat> give it even as he demands it. Now it is the effective power or effectual power of Christ in and through the Holy Spirit which produces, causes, brings to pass these spiritual alterations, these spiritual shifts, these spiritual transformations from poverty to riches, from nakedness to being clothed upon, <clears throat> from not from blindness to sight. And understanding this fundamental point clearly declared and expressed by our passage that God in Christ, through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, effects the regeneration of blind and poor and filthy rag-clothed sinners, lukewarm in their tepid and nauseating lives, it is this fact, this doctrine, this plain meaning of the text, which forms the background to our understanding of the open invitation and exhortation of verse 20. Now, you're familiar with verse 20. You've heard it quoted over and over again in many, many contexts. Christ Jesus stands at the closed door of the Laodiceans' hearts and knocks. He knocks with... You are wretched and miserable. He knocks with, you are poor. He knocks with, you are blind. He knocks with, you are neither hot nor cold. Christ Jesus knocks with the sounds of conviction on the doorframe of sinful hearts. And he then declares, if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears your voice, how will a soul dead in trespasses and sin hear your voice? How will a soul blind and naked hear your voice? How will any soul which is a corpse hear your voice? How can a soul dead in spiritual poverty, <clears throat> in the spiritual poverty of original actual sin, hear the voice of Jesus Christ. How can a soul shrouded in the death of its filthy rag robes hear Christ's voice? How could dead Lazarus hear Christ's voice after four days in his tomb? Only if the one inviting the hearing of his voice opened the ears of the spiritual corpse so as to enable that dead sinner to hear his invitation. Only if the one who demanded, as he demanded of Lazarus, come forth, would supply the power for Lazarus to hear that message and to come forth. Christ 
demands the hearing, but grace upon grace, he then supplies the power and the desire and the hunger to hear his voice crying, his voice, his, his voice crying in his hand knocking at the door. It is that same almighty power here in this passage, verse 20. It is that same almighty power which enabled Lazarus to hear Jesus call, Lazarus come forth, and he came forth. If anyone hears my voice, it is because, effectual cause, divine and supernatural cause. If anyone hears my voice, it is because I caused them to hear my voice. And if anyone opens the door to me, it is because I caused them by the divine and supernatural spiritual power to open the door to me. And if anyone sits down with me at my table in a supper of mutual love, affection, and celebration, it is because I sat down with them in an effectual invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, a supper of mutual love, affection, and celebration. You cannot read this verse and assume that Jesus is appealing to some innate plenary power of the sinner to respond to his call. He is placing the obligation upon the sinner and urging the sinner as he knocks and cries out, Come unto me, that you must then be made able to come unto me, and I will make you able in the day of my power. Psalm 110, paraphrase. Notice how verse 21 lays out this mutual concurrence of the divine and supernatural cause, but here in 21 in a redemptive historical fashion. I have overcome, says Jesus, and I have sat down with my father on his throne. I have gained this eschatological position and relation for myself, but not only for myself in my resurrection, ascension, and session. There's the redemptive historical paradigm, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand. I have gained this not only for myself, but also for you. I have overcome, so you may overcome in union with me. I have sat down on the throne, so you can sit down on the throne in union with me. I have performed all of this in my life history, so that you may receive and share it in your life history through union with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit down on my throne as I have overcome and sat down on my Father's throne. The effectual, the effectual, all-sufficient power, the all-sufficient force, the all-sufficient element is in the grace of Christ Jesus. It is in the almighty power of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit themselves. It is not in the power, in the innate power of the sinner, dead in his trespasses and sin. A corpse has no power. So then, we are overcomers in his overcoming. We are seated on his throne 
in his being seated on his and his father's throne. We are rich because Christ is our treasure and our wealth. We are not miserable because Christ has forgiven the misery of our sins. He is our joy. We are not naked because Christ has been clothed in raiment of glory by his resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus is himself no longer naked as he was on the cross. But he is dressed in the robes of his glory righteousness and justified by those glory robes. So too for us who are in him. Clothed upon with the righteousness robes of the resurrection glory of the Son of God. And thereby justified fully before his face. We are not blind because Christ is the light of the world and has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the eternal light and life. Nor are we lukewarm because Christ burns with a flame of love for his Father and for his own and our hearts burn within us. Our hearts burn within us as we seek to glow in fervor and passion for our gracious God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. There is the force. There is the power. There is the efficient cause. There is the glorious enabling which we need as dead sinners who need to be raised from the grave. Now, you will notice at the beginning today, I did not say anything about a rhetorical frame or a literary paradigm. There appears to be none in this letter. But in conclusion, I draw your attention to the titles that our Lord uses in verse 14. And then I'll move on to verse 21 in conclusion. He calls himself the Amen. Faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now that phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, does not mean he's the beginning of the, of the creation in the sense of being the first creature. It means, as the footnote in the New American Standard indicates, <clears throat> the source or origin of the creation of God. Now it would be easy to say that that's a reference to Christ's power with respect, or the Son of God's power with respect to the creation at the beginning of Genesis 1. John's gospel indicates that all things were created through him and by the word of God and nothing was made except by his power. So it's clear that the scriptures do talk about the Son of God being the source or origin of the creation of the world or the universe. But notice that the end of that line of titles in verse 14 namely the phrase beginning of the creation of God, may in fact be a reference back to the first word in that line, the amen. Now the amen is what comes at the end, the end of a prayer, the end of several psalms in this altar, the end of a uh, devotional exercise. So the word amen here has so be it with finality. It has an eschatological thrust or flavor to it. It has the flavor or thrust of it being a finality, a, shall we say, everlasting amen. Now, if my observation is correct, 
then the phrase amen is a mirror of the phrase beginning of the creation of God. How so? Because the beginning of the creation of God is not referring to the first creation, not referring to the original cosmic creation, it's referring to the beginning of the new creation. That's the eschatological reality of the drama with which Christ is presenting himself to the believers in these churches. He is the amen. That's an everlasting quality. That's a so let it be forevermore quality. The beginning of the creation of God is an eschatological quality. That is, that's that new creation which will never end. That is the beginning which comes out of the crucifixion, the death and burial, the resurrection and ascension of Christ into the glory and is seating at the right hand. So this verse, which has these titles in it, I'm suggesting has its own kind of little subtle framework. The amen being an eternal amen and the beginning of the creation being the new creation in Christ Jesus, which is an eternal dynamic. Now, in order to reinforce the title, let us look at the last verse in the text. Not T-U-S, ear to ear, but the last substantive verse, content verse. He who overcomes. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit on my throne, as I overcame, come, overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Is that a temporal or an eschatological reality? Well, you know it's an eschatological reality. It's an eternal reality. It's talking about the eternal throne and the eternal and everlasting God, and the eternal throne and the everlasting Son of God. And so there is a frame here, if I'm accurately understanding the subtlety of the titles in verse 14. And the ending verse, verse 21, reinforces that subtlety. Namely, this last letter directs us in a framework paradigm to the eschatological riches, to the eschatological ISAV, to the eschatological garments, to the eschatological person to the eschatological kingdom and realm. For we are invited into the eternal and eschatological overcoming, which has already been achieved eschatologically and eternally through Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And by the Holy Spirit, we treasure it and love our Heavenly Father for giving it. And so we say, Amen. We have participated in the beginning of the creation of God and are true eschatological overcomers now and forevermore. Double amen, amen, and amen again. Shall we pray? Father, we bless you for the illusions which are here in these letters, particularly this last one in which we are drawn into the spiritual riches that are present in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. O blessed light of the world, how you have condescended to open our blind eyes to eternal and everlasting glory light. You, O Lord, who are dressed in, in glorious white raiment, you who have the robes of eternal righteousness, we bless you, that you would dress us in those garments so that we would be seen as you are seen, just and righteous in your Father's eyes. And, O Lord, how we acknowledge our poverty, how we realize and confess that we are poor 
and naked and ashamed. So, O Lord, with those treasures of the kingdom of heaven, of that heavenly city, that golden city, full of refined gold, lavish in abundance, with those images in our hearts and minds, we pray, O Lord, that we may rest on those treasures and not store up treasures on earth where rust corrupts and, and corrodes. O oh Lord, thank you for these indications of the, of, the, of the sufficiency of Christ our Savior, the one who knocks and opens to the knock, the one who opens and comes in to the open, the one who sits down and comes to the seat even as we come in him. Bless us with these treasures and riches, and we will give you all the praise and the glory because you are worthy of it, O Lamb of God, in Jesus' name. Amen.